welcome to the first episode of PH Pod Season 3. I'm your host, Kara Schmidt. The theme of this season is public health, health under the radar. So throughout the season of PH Pod, we will be discussing different public health issues, programs, policies that might not be well known or fully understood within the field of public health. Today, we will be talking about the missing, murdered, and indigenous women and girls crisis, as well as what's being done to address it. Though awareness of this crisis is growing, data on the realities of this violence is scarce. Today, I'm joined by Anita Lucchese, who serves as founder and director of Sovereign Bodies Institute, a nonprofit research center dedicated to gender and sexual violence against indigenous peoples. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. As I was doing some research, I came across your 2018 report published by the Urban Indian Health Institute detailing cases of violence against indigenous peoples in urban American cities. Can you tell me about your contributions as co-authors of the report and about the findings of the report? Sure. Really, I'm the primary author of the report. All of the data in the report is data that I gathered over the course of years and wrote the whole thing, drew the maps for it. (laughs) So I, I know that publication intimately. The kind of story behind it is I had been working on creating MMIW database for both the U.S. and Canada combined. Um, Just as a community member, it wasn't my academic research and um, it wasn't funded. It wasn't part of a job. It was just something I did as a community member because I felt called to do it. And that had gone on for several years. And then Urban Indian Health Institute reached out to me and offered me a graduate fellowship to do a report specific to urban Indian populations here in the U.S. So that's kind of how that project came to be. So this report was kind of your brainchild. And then from there, you went on to creating the um, Sovereign Bodies Institute. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, after the report came out, the database started getting a lot of attention and was being used by community members in all these really exciting, neat ways. And felt like the database needed a more formal home. You know, at that point, it lived at my kitchen table and my little sister was our first official intern. And it's awesome that it has those humble beginnings, but Mm -hmm. it's not thing that should belong to any one individual. It belongs to our people. So collectively, a group of us built Sovereign Bodies Institute as the home for that database and all the work growing out of it. And really, that was inspired by not only the ways the community was using the database, but also just how much room there was to grow for us as MMIP family members and as Indigenous survivors of violence to be the caretakers of our own data and our own stories when it comes to the violence we've experienced and to be in charge of imagining what the solutions might look like. So much of the work that's done on this issue is done by the federal government and is not accurate and doesn't doesn't fully represent the magnitude of the violence or the contributing factors to it because it's being done by by folks with pretty significant blind spots. So for us, SBI and creating it was also, you know, a moment for us to role model and say, no, we're, we're the caretakers of our own stories. We're, we are the solution designers and implementers, and we know this issue better than anyone because we're living it. What actions do you think need to be taken to provide accurate data on the MMIW crisis and whose responsibility is it? 
local and federal law enforcement, tribal police, indigenous organizations such as sovereign bodies, or the federal and state government? Is collaboration possible? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem is that this data exists in a million different places that don't talk to each other. And then what does exist is piecemeal and often wrong. So it is really challenging. Like, for example, in Canada, the RCMP has issued, you know, what they think the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls are. And I'm confident that that number is not accurate and that there's many more cases, hundreds, if not thousands more than what they've estimated. But at least they threw a number out. The American government has never even done that. And it's because it exists in so many jurisdictions in so many different places that don't talk to each other. And because I think they know that even their data within federal jurisdictions, which should be readily available, is also not accurate. So I sit as co-chair of the subcommittee on data for the Not Invisible Act Commission, which is uh, the federal commission on MMIP and trafficking of Indigenous people. And our job is to make recommendations to Congress on what they can be doing to address the issue. And um, as we're drafting and refining um, our recommendations, that will be issued later this year. And that's an 18-page document and still growing. So there's a lot to be done. But I think, you know, if I were to make like one overarching recommendation, it would be that, you know, that the government has a trust responsibility for public safety in Indian country. They're failing that trust responsibility every day. Part of maintaining public safety is maintaining data on crime, violence, and other public safety-related matters so that programs are adequately staffed and funded, so that the right methods are being used, whether that's by law enforcement investigations, attorneys in prosecution, or victim services and delivering services. And right now, none of that is happening. So, you know, at, at the very least, it, the burden is on the federal government to really examine what upholding that trust responsibility looks like. You know, that trickles down to, like I said, everything, investigation, prosecution, victim services, and data exists in all three of those places. Mm -hmm. With Sovereign Body Institute, you work with, with many Indigenous people who are dealing with violence and crisis from all across the country, correct? Yeah, the majority of our clients are here in the U.S., but we have never allowed colonial borders to define our work. Mm -hmm. um, so we do provide services to families and survivors anywhere in the Americas. And we do have folks on our staff who are able to help us provide those services in English, Spanish, and French. When people generally look at the MMIW crisis and look at the work that is being done, it's really heavy and it's really dark and painful. You're working with victims of violence, family members of people who have been murdered, who are gone. And I think a lot gets lost in the grief and in the pain. And I was wondering if you could share with me a little bit of the joy that you've encountered in your work, that you've encountered within Indigenous community, if any. Sure. I mean, certainly there's a lot of grief and trauma in this work. I mean, I have my own PTSD from violence that I've experienced in my life, but I also have PTSD from this job. Absolutely. So I, I, I don't want to diminish that piece of it, but I will say that, yeah, there, there are rare but beautiful moments of 
of joy, um, whether that's a moment of connection with, with a client, a family or survivor that needs help, or I love to see our clients succeed. It's extremely difficult to get back on your feet after experiencing severe violence. And many of our clients have lost their homes or their belongings. They've been incarcerated. They've had to move. They've had to spend their life savings on burying a loved one and now are raising that loved one's children. You know, there there's big burdens that come from violence that are long lasting that victim services doesn't address. And so to see a family or a survivor overcome some of that and get back on their feet is really heartwarming and rewarding to see, especially our clients that go to treatment and find their sobriety. That's probably one of my favorite parts of the job. You know, the other the other piece of it for me, having been in this work for, gosh, almost 10 years now, there are families and survivors that I have worked with that have become family. And there are grandmas raising grandkids because the parent is missing or murdered. Mm-hmm. And as a advocate and as an emotional support person, I've been in their lives long enough to see those kids growing up and to get invited to high school graduations and birthday parties. And, and, you know, that's the difference I think between like generic victim services and something that's really led by peer support, you know, led by families and survivors ourselves, you do build those deeper relationships and it is a beautiful thing to experience. I feel very humbled and grateful that, you know, through this work, I have adopted family all across Indian country. So how I like to end these sessions is I like to end on a last sentence, and that can be on how you would like to just end this conversation of this such an important topic. Man, and I'm a long-winded speaker, so I'm trying to think, like, what can I say in, like, a sentence or two? I would just encourage folks, you know, if anybody listening in is moved to get involved, our our website is sovereign-bodies.org. Um, We have a lot of free resources on our website, including an organizing toolkit that gives you a bunch of different ways to get involved in the movement. There's room for everybody, whether you're a family or survivor, native or not, as long as you're listening to families and survivors and letting them guide the work, there's room for everybody. So check those resources out. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I think we all have learned a lot about this crisis and a lot about the work that is currently being done and the work that needs to be done. Next, we are joined by Jody Voice Yellowfish to discuss more local action that's taking place. Jody is chairman and founder of MMIW Texas Rematriate, a Dallas-based organization dedicated to raising awareness of the MMIW crisis. Can you tell us about the mission of Texas Rematriate? Uh, yeah, so officially our mission for MMIW Texas Rematriate is to search for and bring home our missing relatives and to support and offer healing processes to our missing and murdered and their families and to advocate for social change on behalf of all our Indigenous relatives. What services or resources do you offer? We don't really say we offer any specific services. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not um, an official nonprofit yet. We are true grassroots, you know, uh, community organization. But we do serve our community in the capacity of helping people and families in the crisis situation of a missing relative. From experience, we've learned that when you're in crisis mode, you know, you're not thinking 
clearly and we're a kind of buffer between uh family and either police departments law enforcement and media uh, we kind of just help ground the person that's searching for somebody and we help them understand how to file a missing persons report and how to uh, go about creating a, fi- a flyer and posting and sharing safely i think for those who haven't been in the middle of this type of crisis situation don't realize how much there is to do at the start and what efforts can be done in the beginning. Yeah. So it's it's very simple in the beginning, but very important stuff. And a lot of what we do also, we're kind of a conduit to these families and specific resources that we ourselves can't provide. So you kind of act as a go-between for the families. Uh, Kind of. Yeah. You know, we do a lot of work networking ourselves and sharing our histories and the needs of our communities. And that's worked for us with making connections with like not only law enforcement, but understanding we have resources uh, with different foundations too that actually help uh, search for people. Can you share with me a little bit about your background and what inspired you to start advocacy work, which eventually led to the start of this organization? Yeah. So, you know, personally, I'm Creek, Oglala, Lakota, and Cherokee. And I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. So I have always been active spaces in different capacities. And I was a part of American Heritage Day for a number of years and a lot of social justice education. And I did some work around um, VAWA. You mean the Violence Against Women Act? Uh, Yeah. So I did some education around that. And that kind of led to our community showing the need for more resources pertaining to specifically American Indian women. My sister, uh, I have a social work background. She does too. And my sister, who is the co-founder of our organization, she has a background working in women's domestic violence shelters. And Mm -hmm. we started, we kind of started there. We started telling people why VAWA needed reauthorization and how it changes and how we've been excluded through a lot of different ways. And we basically started with just gathering resources because mm-hmm. uh, we were seeing that there was a big lack of our women even knowing how to handle a DV situation and where to go. So that's how you got started in this work? Yeah, just things like that. And that's how the work started under that organization. We we had a vigil for Savannah Greywind. And from that, there was a handful of us that kind of felt compelled to focus specifically on the MMIW crisis. Can you tell me how Texas Rematriate came from that? Yeah, so we grew out of that education phase, I guess. Mm-hmm. With American Indian Heritage Day, they have a, a sole focus on um, advocacy and education and awareness. And we kind of turned into a resource. Once we kind of put it out there that we were this program, we got asked for help almost immediately. And yeah, we just kind of knew from that point we needed to be a standalone organization and yeah, solely focus on how we can help people in this situation. You've been doing this kind of work for years. How have you and your organization learned to support survivors and the families of those currently missing or murdered? You know, we only, we help when we're asked to help. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to respect people's boundaries and let them lead and let to be in charge of some of that stuff when you feel completely with no say in anything going on. So we're very, we're very focused on that. 
coming from that education-focused background uh, to the current progress of your organization, what are some programs or resources you could offer in the future? Yeah, we're we're actually kind of at a point where um, we are strong enough and healthy enough to kind of step away from just focusing on cases and we have a we have a protocol for everything. We have a response to everything, and it's just made us stronger. Like I said, we're at a point where um, our membership grew, and people are really stepping into their own and leaning into what what they're good at, what their strengths are. And you know, we're good with finances. You know, we're on our path to getting our nonprofit status, and we have office space coming up, and we've done cases, and we've done training for all of our members to do intake. So we can do the, the very best by the people that we help. And so in December, at the end of 2022, some of our goals were to connect with homeless folks more in the homeless community, um, self-defense as well. And we, we've done that this year. And one of the biggest things was we wanted safe spaces to talk. My sister and I, we had this idea to have um, anti-time. This was like several years ago. We we wanted a space to talk, you know, with other uh, Native females of all ages. You know, sometimes you don't have the healthiest relationships with your family or you're far away from family, things like that. And But you still need that kind of kinship to be healthy and ground yourself. And so we started anti-time this year and we have uncle time and we've had two-spirit time. A lot of your growth is attributed to creating safe spaces and to discussing such uncomfortable topics. That and us just being stronger and address some of the contributing issues to the overall MMIW, MMIP crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, Now we have spaces to, to be brave and safe. You know, they sound simple, but... A lot of our our own people don't understand, you know, why we have so many trafficking victims and how there's a direct correlation between our high numbers of children and foster care. So we're able to have this these very frank conversations that we can't always have in public spaces like a powwow when we do outreach. I've seen people in our anti-times really come together and offer healing in these spaces, you know, people really leave unburdened in the in the moments. Yes, yeah, some of these things are our, our growth and the things that we do that we know are helping combat the crisis. Are there other MMIW organizations or programs in Texas or other states that you are able to partner with or share resources with? We've connected with different organizations that maybe they can't do like search and rescue type stuff, but they can offer us some some other kind of support. We've linked up with like Texas Native Health. We're starting to work on things like their need for a social worker. They have a social worker now because we've been asking for one for so long and helping them understand the need and how a social worker at this institution helps combat the crisis as well. Having somebody that can help a family understand the Indian Child Welfare Act when there's a runaway. Because some of what we do is, you know, we don't blame somebody for running away. We ask what they're running from. And so it's all about safety. And we've done all these things. We partnered with somebody that wanted to offer self-defense classes. We've talked to Legal Aid of North Texas, and they want to help with victims of sex crimes. And like, there are tons of connections that we've made that they have um, support in different aspects. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about May 5th being recognized as the National Day of awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women and what work your organization has done to get it proclaimed at City Hall. 
So May 5th is actually um, like the national mm-hmm. day of MMIW awareness. And that day was chosen because of Hannah Harris and it being her her birthday and her family doing the work in the state of Montana to get to get that recognized. And yeah, May 5th was a was a big day for for us here as well. We reached out to now he's a deputy mayor pro Tim Narvaez, but he is the council person for District 6 in Dallas. We reached out and we explained all of this and what it was, not only recognizing it, but that it's going to be recognized every year by the work of him and his office really solidified that we're here. Not only like our specific organization, but our community. And it's really, you know, put a spotlight on our history in the city. Now, when we go into these spaces and people are hearing about May 5th and uh, how did this happen? And they're they're learning about the Relocation Act and that Dallas is a relocation site and that we have a very thriving, strong community that are generations deep because of the relocation program and that we have so many tribes represented because of that. And they find that we've had uh, an Indian clinic here and there's resources like that. And so, you know, it seems almost kind of um, just aesthetics to have something at City Hall and have this proclamation. But it, it it really is like it plants a seed with everybody that hears about it and they start to ask and they start to see that, oh, we have people that can educate this class. We have singers and dancers that can can share culture and then they see our needs and they see what they can offer. So yes, uh, May 5th proclamation and educating city government has been vital. What is the process like working with local law enforcement, especially because of the history of violence, not only against indigenous people, but against all minorities and people of color? So I've really been trying to be as truthful and straightforward with my own personal feelings and beliefs and things like that, because we have to remind ourselves constantly, you know, this crisis is bigger than any one individual in our feelings. But so I'm, I'm very honest of the fact that, you know, I, I do have a distrust of, of cops, especially, you know, uniformed officers. And I grew up in the hood in Dallas and, you know, I've seen calls to the cops not go well. I've seen these things happen. And, from from the jump when you know I made it very clear it's like I'm I'm very uncomfortable the very first meeting we had and I walked into this room expecting a handful of people and not 15 extra uniformed officers I explained you know I'm very uncomfortable and I'm really thrown off and it's taken me a moment to focus you know and also I I, I shared to when we were heavy in the pandemic during quarantine and there was a call to defund the cops that I was very much a part of that. I was in in our city organizing around the city budget to defund and teaching people how to go to city hall and speak at city council meetings and have their voices heard. I share that, you know, because it's important to me and it's important for them to understand that is where I'm coming from and that is the community that needs your help as well. And when those conversations arise, I've I've had officers in these spaces tell me, yeah, I, I, I completely understand. I grew up in Dallas. I grew up here. An officer has even told me, you know, like there's family members that don't speak to them because they are officers now. So this is really deep within our city and all communities, this distrust, but because we have these spaces now where we can talk, we're able to share flaws and inconsistencies that we see within things like filing a missing persons report. So yeah, I try to be as honest as I possibly can because if you're you're honest, then 
you're open, you're open to, to learning and hearing. And yeah, I think that's a goal of mine personally. And my growth as a person is to be able to check my biases and grow and build in a healthy way. And I think that's what we're doing with our organization and our relationship with, with law enforcement right now. Can you walk me through the process of working with a survivor or a family member of someone who's currently missing or has been murdered? Yeah, so we typically try to wait and see if a family is going to reach out. Oftentimes we are already aware, especially if it's a local case and situation, you know, because a lot of our members have deep roots in the Native community here. Um, So if there is a situation, a lot of us have already heard of it. But I tell our organization, you know, the, the family needs some of that strength to have the say in how it's going to happen. And so we kind of wait, but if... If we know, like, if we know them personally, sometimes we do have to reach out and remind them, you know, we can help. But sometimes also because we do work in coalition with other MMIW folks all over the country, especially in Oklahoma and some in New Mexico. But because we were so close, you know, that cases go over state lines from Oklahoma, Texas easily and all the time. But most of the time, if we have to lead a case that's in Texas we're in contact with a, a family member, a loved one in some way, and we have a case intake happen. We've had all of our members train in how to do this, and they take an intake and find out and learn as much as they can about this person in the case. And from that, we do things like we find out if a missing person's case has been filed because case report number is so important when somebody's missing. Oftentimes, if not every single time, Media, things like that will not share anything without a case report number mm. because it can't be verified. And a lot of foundations and clearing houses that help with search will not will not help if there's not a case number. So we have to stress those things and help people um, understand that. With these intakes, we're able to create flyers and we walk families through how to do this safely and how to share them safely. Because the, the first thing you want to do is blasted on your social media that somebody is is missing and you throw your number on there and that's extremely unsafe and so we try to help people understand that and that that gets a lot of pushback and then we're told yeah we're getting the fake tips and ransom now and and i we haven't had a case where that hasn't happened yet you know be like yeah like this happens let's let's do it this way now but also we help with distributing flyers like on the ground because that can increase chances of being seen and found and uh, the proper authorities being alerted, an insane amount. People kind of forget, you know, the power of a paper flyer at a grocery store or a gas station or a bus station or 24-hour restaurant. They they help so much. So we're, we're basically just there for the family. We've helped um, provide some meals, uh, gas, help them print flyers, you know, defer those costs, um, things like that. And of course, just utilize any of our resources and network to to help in a specific case. How hard is it to file a missing persons report? It can be, it can be really hard, actually. Mm-hmm. And this is something that uh, comes out of these really organic, healthy conversations with law enforcement and government is that understanding our people and our culture and that we have a lot of homeless people by choice. But that doesn't mean they don't have family and they aren't connected and they aren't checking in all the time. And families know when, you know, if there's somebody that is homeless by choice, but they check in every week and then they don't, they're missing to that family. 
And so sometimes it's like when you say they are unhoused, it's kind of dismissed and it might be harder to file or they have unmanaged mental health issues and are having some kind of episode like People are afraid to call because they could be taken to jail and not get the help they need. Um, And also runaway cases are often dismissed. And it's like, no, uh, families often know their their habits and what is normal and what's not. And a lot of assumptions are made that can waste really precious time. And oftentimes, you know, and I'm not saying that like MMIW, MMIP groups do the work of the police, but we're, we're proving they need us to step in at this mm-hmm. point, like, and not ignore it. So yeah, it can be hard in that sense, but also in the process, sometimes the smaller the town or things like that, like they don't have a lot of missing persons cases and maybe they kind of drop the ball and the, the start to get it going and some time gets wasted. But in bigger cities like our city, it can be very difficult in the sense of time, I think is the biggest obstacle. As our conversation comes to a close, How I like to end these sessions is I like to end on a last sentence, and that can be on how you would like to just end. Yeah. So don't talk about it, be about it. You know, there's with this kind of work, we do say we're beyond awareness. We don't just need the the MMIW art, the handprints. Yes, those are extremely important, but we're at a point where now we need some action. I want to thank you for joining me and talking with me today. These topics are really important. And I think it's really important that organizations like yours are doing the work that's being done. And this call to action that you've given is really important. We've moved past education and awareness and hopes and prayers, and we've moved toward the need for concrete action. PHPod is a podcast brought to you by Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the state of the population. Join the conversation on social media and and subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup to receive your stories of the week delivered to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thank you so much for listening in. Uh, See you guys next time.